Yes, amen. Well, I was, uh, I have been blessed already to be here this morning, and um, I too just want to echo again, I think probably one of the best services, well, I don't know if I should compare or not, but one of the ones I enjoy a lot is our Wednesday evening prior to communion. I just really, really enjoy those times of just hearing each other and uh, just um, sharing I appreciate the honesty, the openness, and I'm grateful that we have a place where we can be honest and open and transparent with each other. God directed my thoughts this morning on possibly a little bit of a different note for a communion message, and in some ways I struggled with it because I, I thought it was a little bit out of the norm for a communion message. Uh, but yet I felt inspired uh, by the thoughts that uh, God brought to my mind. And so I just uh, I, I want to share that with you this morning. It's possibly maybe a little bit more on the philosophical t- uh, part of, of why we have communion. I remember, I don't know, five, six years ago, I brought the children up front, and maybe we should do that again. And uh, maybe that was in the baptismal. I, I one of those. I brought them up front and tried to just really, in in very very simple terms, say why we're doing what we're doing, and maybe it'd be appropriate to do that again with communion. As adults, I think we understand and uh, up in that uh, it sort of becomes a, a customary thing for a child, but. Uh, Maybe it, uh, it would be well for us to uh, just sort of sit down with them and, and explain it in very simple terms. I want to talk about several key components that go, that follow, or that go along with Christ followers. And why those things are important. The relativity of these key components uh, give credence to why we believe it's important to share the Lord's table together, have communion, and other doctrines of scripture that we have, why these things are important. Sometimes it's easy for us to sort of fall into a rut or sort of fall into a a method or a way of doing things and, uh, we, and, and, and through that, then I think we sometimes lack the depth uh, and, and the, uh, the uh, sustenance that really is part of the occasion. There's a strong voice in the Christian community, and I, I put Christian in quotes, in the Christian community that discredits some of the teachings that we find in Scripture, which I think has left some individuals disillusioned and has influenced other individuals. The older I get, (laughs) the more I'm sickened by a Christianity that is in name only. Um, And maybe what generated this message was a good friend of mine 
who took his two adult youth to the Apple Festival several weeks ago, and they didn't go to, to, to take the rides and to, to do the entertainment, but he took them up there to pass out tracks. And I applaud any father who has that uh, kind of courage in a local community. And that's what he did. And he was telling me of an experience that he had that evening as he was witnessing to a, a, a young lady who he said was tattooed from the bottom of her feet up to as far as her, uh, her shorts would, would, that she was wearing uh, would, would uh, reveal. And she was sitting there with a cigarette and a nose ring. And um, as he began witnessing, he says, oh, he said, I know Jesus. I've got a relationship with him. I, I'm a Christian. But as he probed her about that relationship, she seemed extremely disinterested. <laughs> and the conversation soon came to an end. And I'm here to say right away this morning, I want to be clearly understood. I think anyone that knows me well <laughs> is very aware that I believe solidly that we are saved by grace through faith. It's recorded in Ephesians 8. We God with our tattoos, with our cigarettes, with our immodesty. And it is on that basis that we encounter Jesus Christ. I do not believe that we need to rid ourselves of those things in order to meet God at a core level. Yet, like I said before, I am increasingly sickened how Christians in the West have diluted what it means to be a Christ follower. There seems to be little lifestyle change for Many Christians in the West, I know I'm painting a broad brush, and I'm very aware of that, and I know that there's some very sincere people out there, and, um, and, and, and I enjoy meeting them and talking to them. But this, uh, this, in, this kind of inconsistency attacks in two ways. First of all, I think it brings confusion and a lack of clarity to the unbeliever, and Many who use the excuse, and I know it's only an excuse, but many who use the excuse that Christians are only hypocrites probably speak, at least in part, the truth. Unfortunately. Because the words and the actions do not line up. Well, secondly, the second reason I think this inconsistency attacks Secondly, it appeals to the lower nature of a carnal person, even those who are Christians. And it tends to drag those who are weak in the faith to a lower level. Uh, and, and that is also disappointing. I know I've said it before, and I'll say it again. You've heard me teach it, and I believe it. But uh, the Western church is widely, has been widely influenced by the effects of individualism. This belief or this way of thinking, and I just, the reason I think it's important for us to teach this, 
line upon line, precept upon precept, hear it again and again and again, because I don't think this philosophy dare enter into the congregation, into the church of Jesus Christ. This kind of, that, the, the kind of individualism that we see out there in so many uh, groups, people groups, even, unfortunately, churches. And it's got to stop somewhere, somehow. It opposes, this kind of influence opposes any kind of external influence upon the interest of the individual. I have so much appreciate hearing you, many of you, express yourself. Look, I want to be accountable to the body. And I trust these are not real words for you. Look, I want to be accountable to the body. If there's something you see in my life that needs to be changed, come talk to me. And I hope you're saying that with a sincere heart. That's what needs to happen in the body of Christ. There's just no room for, we come to Jesus Christ as an individual. We cannot come to Jesus Christ as a church. The church will not speak for you. You will speak for God, before God by yourself. But as a body, we function as a body. And that means that any member, thumb, toenail, hair, heart, whatever it is, any member, that operates on its own is not functioning within the means of what a body should function like. And uh, so the Western church, the Western worldview has conditioned us for this kind of thinking. And I've talked already about the, the, the logic that even our, our, the nation here in the West was founded upon, the unalienable rights that we have. Christ followers think and live in terms of community. Realizing that life is bigger than myself and that we, uh, that, we, that we serve, we learn to serve. These two philosophies are at polar ends from each other. And uh, I just think that the, I just think that I'm just increasingly convinced that the, the philosophies, the divergence between these two philosophies, the, the, the philosophy and the lifestyle between these two, uh, just it, it needs to broaden that, that uh, those who are following Christ and those who are, are set on being their own individual. I just think that gap needs to broaden. And so when I see the fruit that is coming from many of the Western churches, I, I am distraught, I'm saddened to conclude that I think we have slipped. We're not slipping. I think we have slipped into a state of apostasy. And uh, God help us that we here in this congregation would not be guilty of that. I just have often wondered what Jesus Christ would say if he would write us a description like he did the churches in, Re in Revelation. What would he say about Berea Christian Fellowship? Well, there's three key components that I'd like to talk about this morning that I think go along with a Christ follower. I think they may appear insignificant on the surface, yet I think it determines, ultimately determines how one thinks and what he believes. And the first one that I want to look at is that a Christ follower centers their interpretation of Scripture on the teachings of Christ and his call to discipleship. 
I'm quite confident that if I were to ask you this morning to raise your hand whether you believe in the authenticity of the scriptures, I would, I would be surprised if not every hand would, would be raised. I think that's quite settled in our minds and in our hearts. We believe that the authority of the word, we believe in the authority of the word, and that that's really not probably something that many of us struggle with at all. However, there needs to be a presupposition that the interpretation of Scripture is filtered through the teachings of Christ. In other words, all of Scripture needs to be viewed through this lens so that it does not conflict with what Christ taught. When we promote the teachings of Christ as a standard uh, by which all Scripture is measured, then we don't see the Scriptures or we don't see the Bible as a flat theology. And what I mean by a flat theology is that the Old and the New Testament are equal to each other. Now I know, hang on a little bit, don't write me off yet. Because one of the first arguments that people bring when we take this kind of a position is they pull up the verse in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, and they say all Scripture, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good word, or for every good work. So those who hold to this position put the Old and the New Testament on the same level, or as we would refer to it as a flat theology, as some would call it. When we take this kind of a position, the view, this view tends to a morality that, is, that, re, that closely resembles the Jewish community or the Jewish morality. And so it's not unusual for individuals who take this position to be okay with the swearing of oaths, with accumulating wealth, with participation in war, they go along with divorce and remarriage, lawsuits, retaliation, and many other pharisaic traits that, uh, that, that is acceptable. It's an acceptable form of lifestyle since it was allowed in the Old Testament. And in some places even promoted in the Old Testament. Years ago, I took a... Uh, I took numerous one-day seminars with uh, Dan Allender, and, and by the way, even before we knew each other well, I think uh, uh, Lloyd and Angie uh, joined us in one of those, uh, but um, Dan had a way of uh, presenting things that uh, sort of, uh, yeah, whew, stretched me in, in many ways. One of the things he said that, I, that I've, I just haven't forgotten yet, and probably won't, he just, he just encouraged his listeners to, 
to think of the Bible as one big storybook. Think of the Bible as one big storybook, and it has revolutionized the way I read the scriptures and how I understand the scriptures. The scriptures start out with saying, in the beginning, God. And in Revelation, it ends up saying, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So I agree with those who hold to a flat theology that all scripture intricately weaves God's story from beginning to the end. I agree with that. But rather than seeing the Old Testament or the Old and the New Testament on a level playing field, I would see the Old Testament pointing forward to Christ and his teachings being the final and the ultimate revelation with the epistles supporting what he taught. Jesus made that very clear. Take your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to uh, not put as many verses on the PowerPoint because I want you to turn to them. Sometimes it helps us to see it in our own Bibles. Okay? So Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus said this. He said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. He's referring to the Old Testament or what we would refer to as the Old Testament. I didn't come to destroy the Old Testament. I did not come to destroy, but what? To fulfill the Old Testament, or as Jesus referred to it, the law and the prophets, was the platform that God used to establish the principles that Jesus taught in the New Dispensation. I cringe when I hear people talk about the Old Testament laws with a hint of disdain. I cringe when I hear that. Equally concerning is when when a comparison is made between law and grace with a negative connotation to the law. Those who hold that position only reveal that they don't fully understand grace because you cannot experience grace until there has been a law. In other words, there has to be an old before there can be a new. And so as Christ followers, we do not undermine the Old Testament. Rather, we believe that the New Testament teachings of Christ trumps the issues of Old Testament morality. Let's just take some time to look at a couple of these. And these are taught by Jesus. You've heard that it was said by them of old. Matthew chapter 5. You shall not murder. But I say to you that whoever's angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. He ups the ante. You have heard that it was said of them of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, Jesus saying, that whoever looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Furthermore, it was said of them of uh, it was said of uh, it has been said whoever divorces his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery and whoever marries a woman who divorces who is divorced commits adultery. That's what Jesus said. Again, you've heard that it was said of them of old, you shall not swear falsely, but I say to you, I tell you, do not swear at all. You've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist a person, an evil person, I'm going to pause right here <laughs> because I've heard a lot of talk in the last five years about the Second Amendment and self-defense and a lot of other things. And what would I do if someone would come in to my family? Can I ask you a question? If this doesn't apply at that situation, when does it? Either we take the scriptures for what it says, or we don't. And that's what too many people have done. They have taken the scriptures, they've weeded out what they wanted, and others they've kept, and they've created their own form of Christianity. And that's why we see a deluded, regressing, and can I say, a, a church that has slipped into apostasy. Because we've taken the scriptures at our own bidding and our own call, and we've, we've, we've tailored them to what I believe. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy, do good to them, and on and on. Many other teachings that Christ gave us, this is just a small portion of the things that Christ taught, trumps the Old Testament. Followers of Christ centered their interpretation of Scripture on the teachings of Christ, believing that God's grace will be there to give them the strength to accomplish what he asks us to do. There are some who think that Christ's teachings are unattainable for present-day living. They believe that his teachings are for some future time. But Christ's followers believe that his instructions are for us today and that his grace is there to live them the way that he has given to us. Now, why is this important? Why am I making a big deal of this? And I think the reason is because our belief system ultimately affects the way we live. And so this is some foundational this is some foundational uh, uh, teaching. And, and, and if our foundation is faulty, then the rest of the house is going to be equally faulty. Which leads me up to the second point. Christ followers also believe that justification is followed by sanctification. Salvation is attained by grace through faith that works. Now let me rephrase that again. Let me repeat that again. Salvation is attained 
by grace, through faith, that works. I coined that sentence very carefully. (laughs) I did not say, you will notice that I did not say, that salvation is by grace, through faith, plus works. Rather, it's a faith that works. And I know that we have had some significant teaching on this point uh, in the recent weeks and months, and, and Laverne did a really good job of that several weeks ago when he talked about those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. I thought he did a good job on this. And I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I do want to just allow me to teach maybe this in a little bit greater detail. Because again, I think it, it lends to this cheap grace that we see and hear too often here in the West. There has to be more. Justification. Let me talk about justification briefly. Justification is an accounting term. When we put two, when we say two plus two, four justifies two plus two. Okay, just four is the justification of two plus two. It, it justifies the numbers two plus two. Or another way of looking at it is when we think about scales. If you were to put on the left side of these scales, a five-pound bag of sugar, uh, I would have to, in order for the scales to be justified, I would have to place uh, something else, maybe five silver coins, so each of them weigh one pound. Okay, five uh, one-pound pieces of silver. If I put that on the right side, the scales will be justified. The mistake that people make in understanding biblical justification is when they view justification as only being an accounting procedure in the books of heaven that happens totally outside of the person and a period is being placed at the end of that process. According to that view, When a person prays a sinner's prayer, his sins are deducted from his account and Christ's righteousness is credited to his account for all eternity regardless of Christ's call to discipleship. Now I want you to hang with me, okay? Because part of what I'm saying is correct. In this position, Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5 places a huge, huge oversized cross on top of the scriptures that obscures Christ's call to righteousness and right living and renders obedience unnecessary, or at least not as important or unimportant. In other words, Romans chapter 3 or the book of Galatians trumps all other passages of Scripture. And unfortunately, when this position is taken, I think it leads to careless living. And that's why, 
we can continue smoking our cigarettes, sporting our tattoos, which, by the way, God, God uh, spoke against in, in Leviticus. By our still claim Christianity. That's why divorce and remarriage rate can be higher in the world of Christianity than in mainstream society, and we barely blink an eye at it. I just think that that's, that's it's just so wrong. That's why Christians can totally disregard the instructions of Christ in the Gospels and Paul's instructions in, in Corinthians about settling our accounts outside of court and be totally okay with taking someone to, 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 in a lawsuit, taking them to court in a lawsuit. That's why, that's why, quotes, Christians do it. That's why people hoard, continue to hoard and accumulate wealth even though Christ taught us, uh, take no thought for tomorrow. Because tomorrow is going to take care of itself. And I'll tell you, I'm the first one to raise my hand and say, I struggle with this one. And the list could go on. Now, I want to be clearly understood. And I'm going to take the time. And I think it's fitting and appropriate, especially for this occasion to talk about the book of Romans just briefly as an overview. According to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says that the wages of sin is death. The scale has been tipped by our sin. The scale is tipped by our sin. But what justifies the scale? What justifies the scale? The gift of God. Okay. What else? His death. What'd you say? What if if what balances it out? God's righteousness. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. I want you to turn to it. Romans chapter 3, verse 27. According to Scripture, there are three things that justifies the scale. And by the way, I just wish we'd have, and Keith has done a, a very good job in teaching through the book of Romans. But I want to just do a little bit of an overview on chapter 3, 4, and 5. Romans chapter 3, verse 27 and 28. It says, where, where is boasting then? It is exalted. By what law? Of works? No. But by the law of what? Faith. Faith is the first step in the process. By the law of faith that a man... Sorry. No, okay, let me start over. Of works, no, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith. He's justified, justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Very clear. I think a first creator can understand that. By faith, apart from the law. 
Let's jump over to Romans chapter 4. And, and we're missing a lot of good passages in through here. I'm just picking uh, out some of them. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But to him who does not work, but what? Believes. Second part in the process. On him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Okay, so we have our and our belief. Now, I think part of the mistake that people make is they say, coming to God is something totally outside of myself. Well, Christ's work on the cross is outside of myself. But me entering into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ requires something of me. It's not totally outside of myself. It takes faith and it takes belief, according to Scripture. Christ, the reconciling man to God, or what some people refer to as the original sin, reconciling man to God happened outside of man. That's what Jesus Christ did. But us coming to him personally, as an individual, that's why we keep teaching over and over again, especially in our instruction class, this is a personal walk with, between you and God. You cannot come to Christ through your parents. You cannot come to Christ through the church. Being a member of the church does not make you right with Christ. You come to Christ on an individual basis, by faith and by your belief. And then let's go over to chapter 6, chapter 5, verse 6 through 11. <clears throat> beautiful words, beautiful words. Romans chapter 5, 6 through 11. For when we were still without strength, the scale is still tipped. Okay? The scale is still tipped. When we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die, would even dare to die. But God, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, in that while the scale was still tipped, in that while it was still not justified, Christ died for us. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, wow. That's, that's amazing. Much more than having now been justified by his what? Amen. That's the third step in the process. We shall be saved from the wrath through him. For even when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Look at the scales. Ha. My faith, my belief, God's blood, Christ's blood equals the scale. It requires something of you. It requires something of me to enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
I don't know how much more clear we can be than this. We find salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This is how an entrance is made into the kingdom of God. These three chapters in Romans lays it out very, very clearly. Yet in order for us to get the full gospel, Scripture must be compared to Scripture. When we study the book of Romans, we've got to understand that Paul's target group was the Jewish people who, who were still living by the letter of the law, but were totally misguided in their understanding of righteous living. And so he overemphasizes in one way, overemphasizes a valid doctrine in order for them and for us, I might add, to understand the process of justification as a means of entering into the kingdom. That's why Paul, was inspired by God, wrote those chapters there. But unfortunately, too many times, many gloss over the rest of the book of Romans. <laughs> and for the rest of the chapters in the book of Romans, he brings out another doctrine that we dare not ignore. When we ignore the rest of the Romans, we lose touch with practical Christianity. And immediately after those chapters, Paul launches into the process of sanctification for the, remaining, for the remainder of the book. I just want to highlight a couple of those. So on the one side, we have Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5. We have been justified. That happens through Christ, our belief and faith in Christ. I am not promoting any kind of works-based salvation. It is, it is my faith in Christ, my belief in Jesus Christ, and the atonement, the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what reconciles me back to God. That's what justifies the scales. But immediately as we go into chapter 6 of Romans, Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, certainly not. How shall we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? And then Paul just goes on for the rest of the entire chapter, chapter 6, explaining that when one is justified, he becomes dead to sin and he becomes alive unto God. Something intrinsic changes within him. Something is birthed. Other parts of Scripture says, Behold, all things have passed away and all things have become new. Something intrinsic shifts within us when we have been justified by Christ. We jump over to chapter 7. And he takes the entire chapter to explain how our selfish nature wants to raise its ugly head after we have been justified. Now, if we were not justified, if no intrinsic change would have happened within us, there would be no fight. Right? There would be no fight. In other words, the process of sanctification invokes the residual carnality that still remains. God wants to sanctify us. And so we find Paul putting it in in. in our terms, you know, the things that I want to do, 
That's the, those are the very things I don't do. The, and the things I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. And there's this war that's going on within us. Why is that war happening? Well, it's because we've been justified. We, have now belo- we now belong to, G- to, to Jesus Christ. We have, we have gone from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And of course there's going to be a war. Of course there's going to be tension. Of course there's going to be fighting. And Satan wants to trip us and, and, and cause us to fall. So it takes a whole chapter to explain that. And then he goes over to chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And all people love to repeat this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. And they stop right there. Well, the truth is, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But what does the rest of the verse say? Who do not walk according to the, to the, to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, when, when our lives are committed to walking after the Spirit of God, there is no condemnation, even if we trip and fall. Can I say that? Even when I trip and fall, because I'm still headed in the right direction. That was what was confusing to me as a young boy. I used to think every time I tripped and fall, I had turned my back away from God. That's not the case necessarily. Repentance means when I've repented, my back is turned to God. My back is turned away from God. And, and, uh, or my back is turned toward God. I'm walking away from God. And the word repent means to literally means to turn around. When you repent, you turn around and you start walking toward Christ. And you're heading that direction. And sometimes that war that happens in chapter 7 of, of Romans causes us to trip and fall. Have we turned around? Not necessarily. Some may have. But there are many people who are still heading in this direction. And they tripped and fall. And then in John chapter 1, he talks about confessing to one another. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you. You know what that word confess means? Agree with. Agree with. You confess your sins. The Holy Spirit comes to you and says, James, what you did was wrong. It's not right. It's not Christ-like. It's not what a Christ follower would do. And I say, yes, you're right. Yes, you're right. I agree with the Holy Spirit. We confess, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We learn from that mistake. We don't go back into it again, or we try not to go back into it again. We try to learn from it and become more Christ-like. So there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh. If you're living according to the flesh, your heart will condemn you according to this verse. So if your heart is condemned, pause and do some deep introspection and make your amends with Christ. The rest of Romans brings beautiful balance to the doctrine of justification, which leads me up to the third component of a Christ follower. The third thing that I'd like to bring out, and the last one, is that Christ followers are committed to obeying 
all, all the instructions of Scripture, all the instructions of Scripture. We're far enough this side of history <clears throat> since the time of Christ to know that, when, that, that whenever, uh, when, when, when everything shakes out, we, we find two lines of thought. One train of thought believes that in the importance that all Scripture needs to be observed in spirit. One train of thought says Scripture needs to be observed in spirit. And maybe only a few that really need to be observed in form. Now, I'm not quite sure how we come to that conclusion. <clears throat> For instance, there are some individuals that, uh, that refer to the doctrine or the teaching of baptism and or communion, such as we're doing today, and not only observe it in spirit, they also observe it in form. In other words, they pull those teachings out of Scripture, of the Bible, out of the, out of the Bible, and they claim its relevance for today. Yet teachings in the same passage, maybe even in the same, in the same chapter, they say, you know what, that's not for today. That was a cultural issue of that day. How do you weed out what is important and what isn't if we start doing that? The other train of thought agrees that scripture needs to be observed, first of all, in spirit. First of all, in spirit. The principles of Christ, first of all, need to be well established in our hearts. Yet equally important, we also see value that we don't separate spirit from form. In other words, Christ followers believe that the New Testament commands are, are to be observed today. And that certain applications even need to be applied as an outward form of what we believe internally. Let's take this pattern. Let's take this pattern and just apply it to several of the scriptures that we find Jesus speaking about. If we go to John chapter 15, verse 14. Turn back there, because we're going to be in several of those passages in John. John 15, verse 14. He says, Jesus says, you are my what? Huh? Friends. friends. You are my friends. Now, how many people love to hear God being your friend. And I would say that a lot of people who name Christianity want to be a friend of God. <laughs> but there's a condition. What's the condition? If, right? Jesus puts a condition in there. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I've commanded you. So absolutely we want to be a friend of Jesus Christ. 
which is spirit, but we also do, which is form. Okay? That's the sanctifying work of Christ in our hearts. The principle needs to be emphasized, first of all, but the action also needs to come alongside of it. John chapter... Sorry, John chapter 14, verse 21. Just further down in that chapter, or back in in chapter 14, verse 21. He it is who has my commandments. There's the Spirit, has my commandments. And what? Keeps them. And keeps them. It is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Many people are high on Christ's love, and we should be. I'm not discrediting that at all. We should be. Christ is love. He is love. And many people struggle with feeling God's love. Is it because they are not following the commands of Christ or keeping the commands of Christ. I'm just asking this as a question, and I'll let you answer that. He jumps down in verse 23 and 24. Same chapter, John 14, 23 and 24. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And he who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. When I read these verses, when I read verses like this, <laughs> and, I, and then I compare what I so often see in the world of Christianity. I'm just thinking, if it's confusing to me, it's got to be confusing to the world. How do people reconcile these kinds of verses (laughs) and yet live in many ways the way that as if nothing intrinsic has happened within them? So rather than focusing on that, I want to call you as a body of believers, those who are following Christ, those who are Christ followers, to take the entire word of God and not only to believe it in in spirit, first of all, believe it in spirit, also carrying it out in form and in action. Jesus set the bar high. I'm the first one to raise my hand and say that Jesus has set the bar high. (laughs) When I read verses like Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And he said it in three different gospels. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, basically the same thing. Whoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. (laughs) I look at the scripture that Keith used last Sunday in Matthew chapter 18, 
in the end of that chapter, how he pointed out in verse 34 and 35, where it says that Jesus was, was wrapping up his story and he was saying that his master, his master, Jesus, was angry and delivered him to the tormentors until he should pay all that was due him, so my heavenly Father will also do to you, if, if each, uh, to each of you from his heart if you do not forgive his brother his trespass. Those are hard-hitting verses. <laughs> They're not easy verses. But I'm here to declare that God's grace gives you the power to live them out. It really does. They're meant to be observed, not only in spirit, but also in principle. Christ followers believe that Christ meant for us to put teeth to, the verses, uh, to these verses in, in simple obedience. And so I would call you to that this morning. That is why we look at this time every year, twice a year, and I'm not limiting it in this time only because it should be happening throughout the year that we take these verses to heart, the things that Jesus taught. What happens within the body of Christ? The love that we have for each other. I'll tell you today, we have given too many times, the Christian community has given reason for people to scoff Christianity or to scoff Christ. And would to God that we would live in such a way that people are drawn to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness and goodness to us. Thank you for your love and mercy. Thank you for uh, caring for us. And thank you that you have called us to live as, as you would live. Lord, we're the first to admit that we cannot do this in our own strength. But through you, Lord Jesus, you give us the strength and the power and the desire to live according to your words. Lord, I just pray as we take this time to celebrate and to commemorate your death and resurrection, your broken body, the blood that was shed, how you justified us. Oh God, we, we, just, we are so grateful. We're, we're humbled by it, Father, that you would... Um, see fit to have rescued us from the miry clay and have set our feet on a solid rock. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We just uh, pray that you would make this a, a meaningful experience for each one that participates. We pray this in your name with thanksgiving. Amen.